Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be. This is Dan Turchin from Astound, here to present another exciting episode of AI and the Future of Work. So excited to record today's discussion with a friend, someone I admire, uh, someone who has been an entrepreneur, uh, CEO, coach, and investor. Uh, couldn't be more proud than to welcome Mr. Ash Rust to the podcast. Ash, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's get started with a little bit about your background. So I mentioned you're a bit of a renaissance man. Uh, tell us how you uh, got into this racket. So I moved to Silicon Valley about 12 years ago, uh, right before the Great Recession. So it's perfect timing. And I did that with a few degrees in computer science and not much else. Uh, the first couple of startups that I, I worked at were um, bad failures. Uh, the, um, the first one in particular was going after Google as a, as a competitor in search. And um, to give you an idea of, uh, of the way things were there, on my first day when I arrived, they, uh, there was a key to a bright yellow Porsche on my desk. And one of the founders loaned me that car for as long as I wanted. Needless to say, that company failed. Um, and then uh, the next one wasn't quite as bad. It was a good team and in a, in a tough market, continuing to go after consumer search. That company was Aqua hired uh, right before uh, after I left, uh, and then I got very lucky and ended up at a company called Clout K L O U T. So I was one of the first employees there. We were doing um, probably one of the first influencer marketplace concepts that uh, you would now see, uh, and that company ended up being really quite valuable. So it sold for a couple hundred million dollars in 2013. Uh, then me and some buddies from Oxford started a company called SendHub. We went through Y Combinator. We sold that company in 2015. Uh, it was another good outcome. And then um, I've been a, a, on the investing side since then. Uh, so yeah, that's the uh, that's the quick rundown. And, and most of it is uh, related to spending a lot of time on the highs and the lows as an entrepreneur. Uh, and from that, those experiences, I've, I've now become an investor at the very early stages. So you made the audacious move a couple of years ago to start a pre-seed fund. Um, as we both know in the Valley, uh, we're just dripping with new, uh, new pre-seed and seed funds. Um, but there's something unique about Sterling Road. How, how, do, you, how, do, you, uh, how do you characterize the, the unique value proposition of, uh, of your pre-seed fund? Thanks, yeah. Well, there's about 100 new seed and pre-seed funds in, in the Bay Area each year. So yes, there's there's quite a lot of choice for entrepreneurs these days. What I try and do is spend time with founders before investing money. So I want to be valuable uh, to them, uh, demonstrate that spending time with me is going to help them progress the business uh, and that way earn my right to be uh, on their cap table in, in the future and try and be a big part of the company over a one to two year uh, period. So I try and work with founders from the idea stage through to their first million in revenue. But I always want to work with them for 90 days before we commit to each other financially because it's a relationship without divorce. So the most common thing that uh, comes up when I ask uh, CEOs or entrepreneurs that I've met or considered investing in about coaching from Ash Rush, uh, uh, Ash Rush is the, the, the term tough love. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so here, here we, got the, we, got, we got the man here to defend himself. What, is, what, what does that mean? Why does everyone describe the Ash style of coaching as, as a tough love? 
Yeah, well, it's a it's a market differentiator, as you mentioned. There's a lot of people here uh, in Silicon Valley, and many of them, in my opinion, are too nice. I think that you can get to the root of issues very quickly by being direct. Uh, I think that that doesn't excuse you from making that feedback by digestible, nor does it excuse someone being rude. So I try and avoid those things. But I do want to make sure that we um, we speak openly and honestly to each other when we're, I'm in a, a setting with an entrepreneur. So that way we can try and figure out these problems in, in the very short amount of time that we have and the very short amount of time they have to build this business. You know, people often describe this metaphor of entrepreneurship as jumping on a, off a cliff and trying to build the plane on the way down. That does not sound like you have a ton of time. So I find being direct uh, helps us uh, be efficient with our time, as well as um, it's something that drives a lot of positive references from the founders because their experience with most other investors is um, is is so vague and perhaps uh, pleasant rather than being informative. So you've coached as many CEOs and entrepreneurs as anyone. What are some of the early indicators that uh, that the CEO is going to be successful? Resilience is the number one thing for me. The Everyone who's building a business, it doesn't matter who you are, you are going to encounter some problems that are just going to seem like Everest. And you have got to tackle them with uh, a smile. You've got to bring a bunch of people along with you for the ride. Uh, and when you're doing that, that means that you're you're going to take a lot of hits and you've got to come back from those time and time again. So that's what I'm looking for. That's the reason why I want to spend 90 days with you. Because if you, almost anybody who's smart and engaging is going to be pretty good over a one or two hour period. So at the earliest stages, it's almost impossible to judge whether or not that's an act or whether or not it's it's real. But if I get to see you work for 90 days and all the challenges that your startup's going to throw at you, and you can make progress through that, and you can be ready to continue uh, to the next level at each turn, right? You can keep yourself healthy. You can hire people. You can get customers. You can lose customers and and, and move on from that and, and make changes based on feedback. If you can do all those things, then that's uh, that's a really strong indicator. And especially at the pre-seed stage, we don't get much more than the team uh, before we make a decision. So resilience is the thing I like the most. Uh, coachability. Uh, there's a lot of great people out there, but not everybody wants to uh, improve. And uh, not not everybody wants to hear how they might improve, and that's totally fine. But if uh, you're going to take a company from startup to IPO, I think that we are going to have to um, we're going to have to make a lot of changes along the way. Uh, and then the last piece is I like people to be live with customers. So I uh, I don't usually invest in companies that are true frontier tech. So if you're launching a fully automated drone taxi and the plan is for that to go live in 2025, that sounds wonderful, but it's just not for me. Uh, so I really believe that great products are built through customer feedback. And so I want to see the customers giving you feedback, even if they're not necessarily paying you yet. But that that first part of just getting them live, getting them to agree to deploy your software, uh, that's very important for me. So if resilience and coachability and live customers are indicators that you've got a success on your hand, uh, what, what are the early indicators that this isn't going to work? Well, the number one indicator is co-founder issues. If you, if I'm in a meeting with uh, two co-founders, and I always try and meet with the co-founders as a group, uh, especially early on, um, it's usually so clear if they actually like working with each other, if they've been working with each other for a while, if there's a personal relationship, 
that it's perhaps based on. And those things, uh, that can kill a company almost instantly. Even a really great company can die uh, through co-founder disputes. And just because they, they're so distracting and entangling, and then the co- usually the outcome ends up being uh, an albatross that would prevent future investors from being interested because the cap table now has a bunch of people who aren't involved in the business's success. So, yeah, that's um, co-founder issues are the number one. And then uh, the second one that I usually, uh, that pushes me away the most is uh, a desire not to launch, a desire to 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 say that your technology is so special that you must spend months or years building it before you get customer feedback. And the example people often use is things like the iPhone or other major advances in technology that have had significant, caused significant changes in humanity. And, I, and those often have been the subject of years, or certainly months of, of significant investment uh, and, and research. Uh, but my argument is that we were still, people were still using betas and alpha versions of those phones and devices from the very earliest points, and they were still running tests in, 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 in demo environments. So yeah, if you don't want to launch something, if you want to keep it to yourself for a long time, then I, I think that's, that, that usually indicates that that timeline is going to keep being extended over and over again. So I'm less interested in, in spending more time with your, uh, your product. But if you get it live, then I, everything changes for me. Makes sense. So whenever we meet, you always have colorful examples of, of pitches you've recently heard. So let's, let's open the uh, mm-hmm. open the memory bank. <laughs> uh, t- t- tell our listeners a story about the best founding team that you've ever met. What 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 stands out about that that one for you? Yeah, I think one of the the best founding teams I ever met has created my framework for for how I think about what how much of a found how much of my advice a founder should listen to. So I, I like to think about them listening to maybe 70% in the best case, because another the other 30%, they're going to have to innovate on their own. They're doing something that's, that's going to change a significant part of the way we work uh, across the globe if, it, if it's successful. And so, you know, that's not going to be based on advice. If you think about the Google example of we want to deal with Yahoo, and if you're not, you can only invest in our company if you give us the deal with Yahoo. That was a pretty big condition to ask people back in Silicon Valley in 97, but turned out that worked out for them. And it was because they felt that they really had something special. So um, one of the companies that I worked with in, in my first venture capital fund uh, way back in 2016 and 2017 is a company called Nova Credit. And they um, they allow immigrants to come to the United States and other places and bring their credit report from those countries to sign up for credit cards and those kinds of things, which is a really important part of moving to another country. And people don't understand how difficult it is when you arrive here. Those those founders, when they came out of Stanford Business School, were willing to literally get people's information outside of supermarkets and run credit reports to try and test the product. When you see that kind of behavior from people who have really strong resumes and the capacity to raise a lot of money uh, very easily, like that's that's a really powerful signal. And so I, I really that's a it's a great example of a of a team that was really impressive from the outset, both because they had the resume, they had a big vision against a problem that I was personally familiar with as an immigrant to the United States. Uh, and then they were willing to hustle super hard. Uh, and then perhaps one of the one of the, the toughest um, pitches I've seen um, in recent years was um, this comes from the academic group. So we we once had a, a, a guy pitch that was um, 
he was remote and he was the CEO. He was a tenured professor at a well, very well-respected university. And then he had two of his post-doctorate students come in, post-doctorate uh, staffers, I guess, um, coming in. And they were going to be the COO and, and chief product officer of the company. He was going to be the CEO part-time. Uh, and as he gave the pitch, they sort of demonstrated with their hands various different actions for the demo. For the demo, it was pretty horrific. And so we asked what the plan was at the end of this uh, this interpretive dance, and uh, he said that well, if we were willing to fund him, then he might consider going full time. It's like this is possibly one of the strangest environments I've seen, but also just demonstrates like if you don't want to come and work for your company your own company full time like what on earth are you trying to sell us and then these poor people who'd been who'd obviously practiced a lot for this demonstration where they were waving their hands at us aggressively at the slides and uh, and unfortunately they'd made the trip for for no reason so you can see the the two extremes of this uh, are, are are very common in silicon valley and that's because there's an awful lot of opportunity here uh, and, and that breeds behavior on both sides. You should do one of two things. Either post that video to YouTube if you have it. It will go viral. And and or you sell that as a script to the writers of Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, there, there's, there's always some good ones. Um, I had one guy uh, that I met once um, who was uh, a, a freshman in college, and he'd so he'd used his connections uh, through uh, to, to get into a meeting and he was planning to build a rocket. He was going after SpaceX. He was going to build a, a rocket company. Um, he was doing a, a mathematics degree, but no real physics experience and had never built a rocket himself. But his the plan was to raise millions of dollars right now to, to build this rocket. And so we just asked, you know, when the plan was for the first rocket and these kinds of things we're talking about years out and like, okay, well, when do you want to build your first rocket? Or when, when do you think we should invest in your first rocket? It's just, if you've not built something, it's very, very hard to convince an investor to give you money because there's just so much competition out here. And if you're building something that's really tough, then you need to demonstrate so much domain expertise or so much progress uh, before an investor does it. But it did, it did speak, the, I've, uh, the guy is um, was obviously clearly very bright and a master networker to get into the meeting. So um, I've 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 kept tabs on him because I'm sure he's going to build something amazing in the future. And I'm sure you'll be ready to write him a check. Yeah, exactly. Ready, ready to build yeah, so it's kind of an interesting story that I was like semi horrified in the pitch, but at the same time thinking, "Wow, this is really impressive that you've managed to get this far, and that you can give this pitch like with a straight face is really impressive." So yeah, I think that that that's the kind of thing where the the naivety has driven perhaps somewhat uh, a bit of wasted time, but at the same time, there's so much talent there that it's exciting to someone like me. So between Trinity and Sterling Road, et cetera, you've you've backed a lot of winners. Uh, I'm more interested though in learning uh, what are the ones you haven't backed. So tell us a story about that that kind of quote one that got away. Well, that happens to me almost all the time. There's so many companies that I encounter where I they they are closing their round um, tomorrow, and I need to make a quick decision. And when I am asking them for 90 days, um, but there's uh, you know a good example of a company that I worked with for a couple of years and is now doing uh, really great stuff is um, Volancy. So this is a, a, a drone company. Um, it does all kinds of deliveries. When I met them, they were thinking about doing things with um, 
with uh, moving organs for donor uh, for uh, for transplants, uh, and the uh, you know the drone market to me just seemed like a incredibly difficult market, and um, and these founders uh, were were so committed, uh, but it was just so tough to get customers um, to. And obviously, you know, when you're thinking about transporting things that are quite high value, like a kidney, then these aren't. It's not easy to get a trial, so. Um, now that company has raised uh, tens of millions of dollars, and I'm, I'm sure um, I could have done very well, uh, at least with a paper gain on that in the in the near term. Uh, but for me, again, that goes back to my sort of premise of wanting to be live with customers. Great products are built through uh, great feedback. That means that I miss companies where they're doing something on the frontier, uh, and then maybe they 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 make that experiment work. And all of a sudden, they can open up a huge market, raise a lot of money to go and attack that. And I wish them very well. Uh, but it's uh, but those kinds of things are always the the clear misses for me. Uh, the other one where I, I always miss is valuation. In Silicon Valley, the, there are plenty of companies that might have a double-digit million-dollar valuation um, before they're in live with customers. And so I would say no to those all the time. So that recently there was a healthcare marketplace that raised a very large amount of money from Andreessen and Horowitz, and the founders were um, were interviewed regularly because they'd done you know a sensational job of one front. Um, and uh, and I'd you know I'd worked with them probably two or three years ago, and they'd before they were live, they'd wanted an eight or a ten million dollar valuation, and so it was just not something that I was willing to do because if I'm going to spend that two years with you, I need to own five or 6% of the company at the end of that. And and it's just not going to work out on the mathematics side. So that's really hard uh, on, on the on the soul, to be honest. Uh, but that's the reality of, of, of both getting to do the job you like, but also trying to generate returns. In the Valley, we talk about evaluating companies, typically uh, high growth startups in terms of team technology and market. Um, when you're evaluating uh, investors or companies, how do you kind of assign a relative priority to those three? Well, team is so far out in front for me that the others don't really matter. And I think about team traction and, and vision because also I can't, I'm so early that technology is often a premise, an idea. I almost want the companies that I'm investing in, which are usually pure B2B. I want them to be almost doing services, consulting for their first customers, so they can rather than building in advance in some cases. So team is so much more important than uh, the technology. The and then and vision goes above that. So team, traction, vision for me, uh, because again, I think vision develops over time from the various early stages as you can see the market open up and you can see things change. A, a great example of that is a company that I invested in last year called Hop Through. They, uh, when I first invested in them, they were doing ticketing services for small transit agencies. So if you go from Oakland to San Francisco on the ferry, you would, and you use the app to buy a ticket, you would use the hop through system. Now that was a hard market for them to sell into. Uh, they got 25 or so agencies all across the country to join onto that, but it was clear to them that they were compete, competing with large players. But they learned that the large players weren't going after other areas within these transit agencies problems. And so now they've got a new product, which I can't talk about just yet, but this new product, they've been selling it to these agencies in a matter of weeks. So when you can sell to a government agency in a, on a timeline that is the same as a small business, that's a very exciting prospect. Great example. 
So let's say uh, you're starting an enterprise software company today. Uh, what's a problem that needs to be solved? Well, one, one of the teams that I'm looking for right now is in legal. I've always surprised by how expensive legal work is and how much monotony is clearly going on on the other side uh, in terms of what goes on in legal practices. I don't think there are many uh, associates who are obviously very talented who are doing work that is really stretching their brain in comparison to how much drudgery they're doing. And I think there's similar areas uh, going on in other aspects of, of, of a legal office. And so I've, all, I've been looking for a team in um, the legal space for years. Uh, so very excited about the opportunities there because I think that cost reduction and the, and the introduction of AI can really change things, right? We should know what the likelihood is of a case being successful before we go into it. And your lawyer should be able to tell you that. And you should know before you go in front of a judge what the likelihood is of them accepting a motion. And we should know what the likelihood of a motion being accepted is in general. And these kinds of things, I think, are really powerful concepts in law that are just almost impossible to automate at present or haven't been automated at present and should be. Um, and then another problem, you know, I try and think about these problems all the time. But one problem that I heard just last week that I thought was very interesting is around fraud. If you think about how complex the American corporate system is and then the global corporate system are on top of that, companies owning other companies and so on and so forth, pulling the information around those kinds of things is a hard problem, but it's ultimately a commodity, right? That information is a commodity, but you can go and find it for people and, and charge a premium for that. And that seems like a very interesting business, almost analogous to businesses like Checker, where you're running background checks on people um, who are coming into a business for an, like maybe an on-demand company like Lyft or Uber. Uh, but if you're doing the same kind of thing to detect fraud, where you're looking at every transaction that's between co companies that's going on, that is an area where that kind of thing would be very valuable. And I've not seen anything in that area of, of late. You got a lot of entrepreneurs listening to you. So there, there you go, everyone. You, you want to get a meeting with Ash Rust. <laughs> you target uh, le legal reviews and or uh, fraud detection. Little, little secret for the insiders. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I'm, but I'm open to anything. Again, I'm much more interested in exciting teams. But those are definitely two very interesting areas right now, I think. So we talk about how the availability of cloud computing and cheap storage and uh, SaaS services making it cheaper to launch a uh, B2B company at scale. Uh, agree or disagree? Oh, yeah. It's, you, you don't need to have more than four or five people to, have, and to be generating a million in revenue nowadays with cloud services, automation, especially if, you, if you're generating revenue up front, you can afford some of the more managed services, like you could use Heroku versus AWS, which would allow you to have even less staff, for example, uh, but it would obviously be more expensive than the, DIY, the more DIY option of doing it on Amazon Web Services. Uh, but yeah, that's a major trend. And it also means that you um, can hire people from all over the world as well, which is a huge cost saving as well as uh, a big win for access to quality of talent. If it's cheaper and easier to get to call it the first million in ARR as an investor, do you have higher expectations? Well, not for me. I, as a very early stage investor and 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 someone who wants to see all my companies survive and thrive rather than the traditional venture model of seeing two thirds of them fail over time. I, I, I'm very comfortable with people generating sustainable businesses that reach 
eight and nine figure outcomes or nine and ten figure outcomes over very long periods of time. I um, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm very excited about the potential for businesses to be to have global markets that are instantly sustainable. Good feedback. So we're coming up to our witching hour, but before I let you go, I got to get one last question in, and that is your advice to a younger version of Ash Rust. Past Ash has a lot of things that he needed to learn for sure. Uh, the uh, I think the first one uh, that the first hard lesson that I was taught by Silicon Valley is that you need to focus on spending your time with the best people that you can versus necessarily where you might make the most money. And that was certainly some early decisions that I made that I think were um, that certainly cost me a, a lot of personal wealth, but also the uh, the, the speed of development that I had uh, when I first arrived here. I think the second thing is something you already touched on at the very beginning. Like tough love is is a is a great differentiator. It's it's built my career for me in venture, uh, but at the same time, there's no cost to being nice. There's no cost to making your feedback digestible, and so always making sure that you are uh, providing people with the packaging they need to absorb the message you have is something I wish I'd taught myself a lot earlier. Uh, And then the last thing uh, that has been big for me is when you're going through hell and you have to keep going, remember the good times. I try and make an effort when I'm in moments of that I can clearly see a special, they're happy. Make an effort to remember those and take photos and look back on those because there are going to be plenty of dark times, plenty of tough times. And when I'm going through those, it's very helpful to think back on those. They are an an easy resilience boost right when you need them. Good wisdom for all our listeners. So we're going to have to wrap there. But before we do, so to everyone listening to today's episode, I want you to do one thing. You go out right now and you follow Ash Rust, A-S-H-R-U-S-T on Twitter. He didn't ask me to plug him, but I want to because you'll get a steady drip of actionable advice about how to get your startup funded. Uh, Ash, thank you so much for joining me today. Wonderful discussion. It feels like we were just getting started. I hope maybe you'll come back another time and we can continue the discussion. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So that's a wrap with uh, the one and only Ash Rust. Thank you for listening to today's episode of AI and the Future of Work. We'll see you back here next week.